Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 37th episode of the Notacast entitled Brand's Day Out. An analysis of a Game of Thrones brand five in which Bran Stark takes a lovely horse ride atop his brand new saddle. But because this is a song of ice and fire, it all ends in blood. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by this is cool by our newly established small council. So for those who contribute thirty dollars and above a month, we talked with some of you guys and asked if it would be okay if we started a small council with you all instead of you all being just simply Kingsguard members. So if you like to play play a part in our small council, as well as you could be whatever you really want to be. You know, we could be a Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. You could be a Lord Paramount of whatever region or stuff like that. You could sign up for at our $30, $30 and above level. So our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, our Grand Maester Timothy W., Jancy O, our Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, uh, our three Lords Commander of the King's Guard, Mark and Timothy W and Hayden J. And we're pleased to announce our newest member of our small council, Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes. Thank you, gentlemen, ladies, very much. And welcome to the small council, Archmaester June. Thank you, counselors, as always, and special welcome to June, indeed. Yes, yes. So, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our first question this week comes from Lady King T, who asks, Hi guys, I love your show so much. Thank you kindly. Thank you. I've, I've been meaning to send you a question, but keep forgetting to do so. I have a longer question than this one I'm going to ask, so I'll <laughs> leave that for another day. But for now, I wonder how in Tarnations, yes, I work with kids and thus have to come up with PG swear words, <laughs> did Jacques and Hagar get captured? He is a very capable assassin, yet he is brought out of the dungeons of King's Landing. How is that possible? Or is it just the simple manipulation of the story where he somehow needs to meet and be saved by Arya? Thanks a ton. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you for the compliments and the yeah. question, Lady King T. And Jeff, what do you think? How did Jock and Hagar end up in the black cells? Or is that just Martin with his thumb on the scale? Honestly, I think it's Martin with his thumb on the scale. And I also kind of wonder when George was writing A Clash of Kings or maybe even A Game of Thrones, whether he really envisioned the faceless men being anything more than just kind of peripheral to the story. I'm not entirely sure that he had Arya going to Bravos and becoming a faceless assassin and that being a part of her arc at that juncture in the story. He said it. He said, I said the, the thing. thing, said the thing. Um, so I really don't know if you like, if you look at the pitch letter from 93, you don't get the sense that Arya was going to Bravos at any point in the story. You get the sense that she was going to stay in Westeros. So taking that to its logical conclusion, I think we can kind of see that George said, Hmm, I need something cool to kind of keep the reader invested in the story. Why not add a faceless Ben, a faceless man in the form of Jack and Hagar? Oh, I referenced that group back in game of Thrones and Eddard six, right? Is that when they were referenced at the uh, small council meeting or no Eddard eight, Eddard I eight, think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's when they first get brought up. Yeah. And then as he was writing Clash, Storm, and especially Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, he really expanded out the faceless men and expanded the lore around them. And if, you know, if you go back at, you know, right now and George is going back and someone asked him how he was captured, I do wonder whether George might say something to the effect of, you know, the faceless men, as magical and as awesome as they are, they're still men. They still fuck up. They still make mistakes. They can still be captured. 
I, I do know that there's I, like the, the two reigning tinfoil theories that I've read is that Jack and Agar is Ciro Pharrell, which I do not believe. Boo. Boo, bad theory. Don't do that. Ciro Pharrell's sacrifice matters. Okay. End of story. Um, the other one I've seen is that he was intentionally captured to try and get something or get a hold of Arya. And that I just don't. I don't see this the story I don't see the sense of it really of the, the faceless men being intentionally captured to get into the black cells. That doesn't seem to really gel with the story that's being told. But I don't know if Martin has something more in mind or whether he'll go back to it and talk about it because, you know, Jack and Agar is still in the story. He will be in Samuel's arc in in the Winds of Winter, we have to assume. And who knows where he ends up after that. Does he hang out with Euron in, in Old Town? That would be weird, right? That'd be very weird. I don't know. What I don't, I don't know. What do you think, Emma? What, what's your what's your answer to why and how Jack and Hara got ca- got captured? Yeah, this is something that uh, Sean T. Collins, who is a co-host of the Bold Leather Audio Hour with Stefan Sasse, uh, I did a guest appearance on that show recently on why Dance yes. with Dragons is the best. It's uh, a topic near and dear to both our hearts. True. Uh, this is something that Sean has talked about before, where. The faceless men are not exactly the most elegantly executed bit of Martin's world building. Yeah. And that the nature of their powers is such that as soon as they're introduced, he has to just introduce a bunch of roadblocks right. to explain why they can't be as powerful and influential as they really should be. Yes. Given what they can do. And so they're they're kind of awkward in that regard. And they fit Arya's story really well in terms of the themes of identity mm-hmm. and violence and death. Like you think you can see that really strongly in her Bravos chapters. But they're not integrated especially well, and I think you can see that right away with, with Jock and Hagar. Because, yeah, while Martin is right that the Faceless Men are not just omnipotent, and it is interesting to note that we find out that Jockin got Weiss's dog to turn on him not through magic but through basilisk venom. We yeah. find that out uh, kind of in a really delayed reveal in the House of Black and White. So he, he's right that, you know, 20 gold cloaks leveled their spears at Jockin's throat and he's backed into a literal corner. There's not much he can do about that. <laughs> he's going to jail. But it's also just hard to believe that what, he was just going to let Yorin take him to the wall? Like, if, if the battle hadn't broken out near the God's Eye, what was the actual plan for him? Right. Why is he actually in Westeros in the first place? You know, it can't really, can it always have been about going to Old Town, given that he was there before the dragons were born? All, all the timing and motivation seems very kind of suspicious with how he's handled. And I think, I think you're right, a lot of it is kind of backfilled uh, just to make sense of what he's up to. I, I like his interactions with Arya. I'm curious to see his interactions in the Old Town plot, as we talked about on a recent episode, in which that was the question about the alchemist. And I like how that reveal is executed. I like his face trick with Arya. But yeah, when you get into these larger plot logistics questions, I think the faceless men do kind of fall apart. You're actually, you know, you actually put it together really well, because I've never really thought about it that way, but you're you're right in that they kind of just weave Jack and Agar into being all about picking up the dragons when you're like, well, wait a minute, how did he find out about the dragons? How do you get instructions from the House of Black and White in order to get the one book in order to get the dragon egg? Because you're on, and, and this is the place where, as much as Martin says that like the logistics and travel and the way and the time it takes for people to get from point A to point B doesn't really matter to the story. When you think about it like that, you do kind of get stumped. I get stumped at least. And I feel like that, yeah, it does feel kind of like plot contrivance. But yeah, I, I do agree with you and Sean that the Faceless Men as a organization are not the best executed. You're absolutely correct that also they, they match Arya's theme. Um, the killing, the mercy, the death, um, all that thing, all those things play huge parts in Arya's story, especially from Clash onwards. 
And I think that, and I am curious what Martin has in store for Arya, because one of the things he has said is that he has enough Winds of Winter material for Arya that he has like a novella's worth of Arya chapters for the Winds of Winter all set in Bravos. So you have to imagine there's going to be a significant expansion in our understanding and lore surrounding the Faceless Men, their history for sure. And you do kind of wonder what their current implications with the story are going to be. You know, the Faceless Men have obvious interest in the new election for the Sea Lord that is going to be occurring if the current Sea Lord dies. They have an interest in the Dragon Egg. They seem to know about Daenerys Targaryen, or if they haven't, they will soon enough, and they'll probably become very interested in her. And, you know, you just you, you just don't know. So I, I'd be curious to see what Martin does with the Faceless Men. But to kind of, like, round it all the way back to the question, which was about Jack and Agar specifically, I think the answer is that he was just... It's Martin thumbing the scale. Faceless Men aren't omnipotent or omniscient. And I think Martin envisioned Jack and, and the Faces Men as kind of a cool organization and then went back and then later retconned a lot of the structure, history, and foundation of the organization. So that that's my answer for that question. I think you summed it up perfectly, sir. So thank you again, thank Lady you. King T, for the question. Our next question comes from uh, Sir James R.W., who asks, After 35 episodes, I just doubled my monthly pledge in hopes of getting you closer to quarterly live shows. Thanks. My question is, would more people do the same if you read this question in your next podcast? <laughs> well, let's find out, buddy. Only one way to do so. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, our our goal is if we hit uh, 3000 um, a month on, on Patreon, we'll do a quarterly live show where we'll do these episodes that you're listening in video format. Um, a number of folks have asked for this, and we've also seen a number of fantastic folks do live casts. Uh, LML, who's been a frequent guest here, does a fantastic show every Sunday called Between Two Werewoods, which we strongly and highly recommend. I was a guest on uh, two of those episodes. And have you been a guest on it? I know that Chloe has. Chloe and Eliana have, but have you? I've not been yet. We're putting together a kind of magic-themed episode okay. in, on that regard uh, for the near future. But I'm, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah. LML being LML, of course. He's the best. Of course. Yeah, he's the best. So we've, we've seen it done really well by folks like him, folks like uh, the Maester Monthly podcast, and History of Westeros, obviously. All these folks have done a fantastic job with uh, live episodes. We're going to try it in our own sort of will. I, th I think we will get eventually to that level of, of 3000 a month. And uh, I, we're going to try to do our own little thing, which is to try and do one of these episodes where we take some Q&A, do some live interactions with you guys, but just quarterly, just quarterly. Because if we did this every week, I think you would just get tired of our faces and I would have to wear clothes when we record. And that would be awful. I can confirm that Jeff would hate doing that. But also the main appeal of us doing a live podcast compared to anyone else is that you get to make Jeff answer your questions, <sighs> which is just there's there's just a, a subtle pleasure to that. It feels like it should have its own word in the German language. <laughs> and you just don't you don't you don't get that kind of enjoyment with 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 other podcast hosts. That's our brand. That's what we offer the community. So if you want to if you want to make that happen you know, for whatever passive aggressive reason you want, check out patreon.com forward slash notacast a s o i a f. Contribute for as little as uh, five dollars a month. Uh, but if you go up the tiers, you can get access to uh, show notes, uh, early. Uh, early release of our episodes, special Patreon-only episodes, and you might even get to sit our, our small council that we mentioned earlier. So, you know, contribute to the noble goal of making Jeff face down, you dirty, dirty peasants. And dress. You fucking plebs. And dress. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you again, Sir James R., for the question and for the plug of our own patron. That's cool. We appreciate that. And thank you, Lady King of Tea, for your excellent question about Jack and Agar. 
But this episode is not about answering questions. It is about Brandon Stark and his fifth chapter in A Game of Thrones. And here is its synopsis. The snow is falling. The gate is receding upwards. And life is magical and full of joy. For the moment. Bran Stark is able to venture outside the gates of Winterfell at long last and go see the beautiful world outside. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. Bran, Rob, Theon, Lewin, Summer, and Greywind, and four men of the Winterfell Guard are off to go explore around Winterfell, and Bran is riding on his new horse, Dancer. Winterfell's new master of horse, Joseph, Joseph, had, that's a hard word to say, had specially trained Dancer to become Bran's mount, and had then worked with Hodor and Bran to give Bran a feel for how to ride the horse. Kind of him. But now they're riding at long last. They first venture out to the market square with its abandoned wooden stalls, pass by the mostly deserted houses in the winter town that Lewin assures Bran will soon be full with winter approaching. Hmm. A few of the small folk that Bran sees watch the direwolves anxiously, but most of the people are familiar with the direwolves at this point and just kind of bend the knee and don't pay much mind. As they ride, Bran begins to settle more into the saddle. At first, Bran feels unsteady riding without using his legs, but the saddle that Tyrion Lannister designed eases him into riding and he begins to feel more comfortable controlling the horse with his arms and upper body. The party crosses paths with two serving girls. One of them blushes away, and Theon, being a real bro, hashtag actually a total jerk, tells Rob about how Kyra, the one who blushed, squeals in bed like a weasel. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you this awesome sex story about Kyra and Bessa within the hearing of your seven-year-old brother. Rob tells him to cut that shit out in front of Bran, but Bran hears enough anyways. He pretends not to have heard what Theon was saying and looks away, but he can feel Theon's eyes on him. He never liked Theon the way that Rob did. Hmm. About that. Rob rides up to Bran and tells him that Bran's doing well riding. Bran says he wants to go faster, and Rob obliges. Bran feels his cloak billowing behind him, rippling in the wind, and feels the snow in his face. Rob races on ahead of Bran, always looking back to ensure his brother is safe and doing well. They race about two miles or so ahead to the winter town, ahead of the winter town, and then they stop. Rob joshes with Bran about how he thinks Bran would win if they race, but Bran doesn't want to race. Did you hear Summer howling last night? Rob did. Greywind was upset the night prior, too. The direwolves seem to know things. Bad things. Rob isn't sure how much to tell Bran given his age, but after Bran tells Rob that he's eight and heir to Winterfell after Rob, his brother relents. A bird had come from King's Landing the night prior. Dark wings, dark words. They'd been getting a lot of those recently. A bird from Castle Black indicating that Benjen Stark was still missing. Another from the Eyrie from Catelyn with news about Cat taking Tyrion prisoner. That one had sent Rob, Theon, and Lewin into the council chamber for a full day. When they emerged from the council chamber, riders were dispatched, and Bran heard talk of Mo Kalen. Ah, yes. For all you ugly bads listening who believe that Catelyn Stark never sent Ned's commands back to Winterfell, your goddamn supper is fucking served. <laughs> you owe Catelyn Stark, who only did that one thing wrong in her entire life, an apology. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Anyways, Bran asks about word from King's Landing. It's from Alan, Winterfell's new captain of the guard. Jory Cassell, Will, and Heward are now dead. Bran can't believe it. They killed Jory? Why would anyone want to kill Jory? Rob doesn't know, but there's worse news. Ned, their father, had a horse fall on them and his leg is shattered. He's currently unconscious, but Rob won't let this outrage be forgotten. Maybe he should call the banners. Theon reigns up next to the boys. Blood for blood. Theon wasn't smiling now, but Bran reminds Theon that Rob can't call the banners as he's not Lord of Winterfell. 
Theon, who, by the way, is a real jerk throughout this entire chapter, tells Bran that if Ned dies, Rob becomes Lord. He won't die, Bran screams at Theon. Rob assures Bran that Ned won't die because of course he does, but Rob still has care of the North while his father is in King's Landing. Bran wishes Catelyn was back home and looks around for Lewin. Does Maester Lewin say to call the banners too? Theon, again, being a real jerk, I'm going to keep emphasizing that, says that Lewin is cowardly, but Bran challenges Theon that Ned always listened to Lewin. Rob jumps in and says that he listens to Lewin, he listens to everyone. But now, Bran is sad. He'd once thought Rob calling the banners would be baller, but now it only fills him with dread. Yeah, premonition much, kid. Bran asks to go back, but Rob says they need to go find the wolves before they head back. Bran's tired, but determined to act man-grown. He tells Rob that he can go as long as he can, so Rob says he'll track the direwolves down while Theon drops back to Jape with the Winterfell guard. Bran kind of enjoys begin riding again as Theon and the, and the guard fade behind him, and Rob, behind him and Rob until he hears the sound of water. When he hears that, he cries. Rob asks why. It's because Jory brought the boys here to fish back in the day. Do you remember that moment, Rob? Yeah, Rob does remember it. And Bran remembers that he didn't catch anything, but John did. And John, actually being a good dude, gave the fish to Bran. By the way, are we ever going to see John again? Sure, we'll see John, Rob replies. Just like we saw Benjamin when he visited for the feast. <laughs> Rob dismounts and leads Bran and the horses across the stream. On the other side, though, Bran hears the wolf's howl. Rob states the wolves made a kill and he's going to go off and bring them back. He'll leave Bran here alone where there's absolutely no danger nearby. Bran wants to go with Rob, but Rob says he'll be faster on his own and you could just stay here in this perfectly safe location where wildlings and Night's Watch deserters are definitely not lurking about. Rob races off and leaves Bran behind at the stream. The snowfall picks up around Bran and starts blanketing the ground around him. Bran is conscious of his disability, though. He can't feel his legs, but the strap around his chest that was holding him there and allowing him to maneuver was chafing him, and the melting snow was cold, wet, and not particularly pleasant, especially on his gloves. He wonders where the fuck everyone is, though. And then the ragged men and women emerge from the brush around him, because this is a song of ice and fire, and we can't have a fucking nice ride in the woods. Bran calls out a greeting, but he knows these dudes and dudettes are not simple farmers or really from around here. He's suddenly aware of how richly dressed he is versus how these people appear. The largest dude, a big, bald guy named Stiv, asks Bran if he's alone and wonders if he's lost in the wolf's wood. Bran doesn't like the tone of this guy, tells him that he's not lost, but then there's two people behind him. He warns that his brother rode off just a moment ago and that his guard will be along shortly. The ragged men are skeptical of the guard, but they like to have but they like to have Bran's silver pin attached to his cloak all the same. A woman, who is Osha, leans against her long spear and thinks the pin is pretty. Go Stiv, wearing filthy rotting clothes, goes in for a quote-unquote look. Bran notices, notices that one of the ragged men has a black tattered rags from the Night's Watch and pinpoints him as his pinpoints him as a deserter, remembering his father's words that the deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile or cruel. The men demand the pin and Bran's horse. A short woman with blonde hair tells Bran to get down from the horse. He can't, he tells them. You can and will if you know what's good for you. Osha points out the way that Bran is strapped to the horse and says maybe he's telling the truth. Is Bran a cripple, they wonder? Well, yes, but Bran simply states that he's Brandon Stark of Winterfell and they better buzz off or he'll see them dead. Gotta give it to Bran's courage there. Love it. Love it. The wildlings talk about how Bran is bold enough to be a Stark, given his threats when others would beg. The short woman says to cut Bran's junk off and stuff it in his mouth. So nice. But Osha says that Bran would be valuable as a hostage. Mance Raider would pay good money to have Benjamin Stark's nephew for a hostage. 
Yeah, no, the big man says. Fuck that shit. He ain't going back to the wall. The White Walkers won't give a fuck if you have a hostage. He turns back to Bran and cuts the straps around his leg. And of course, because this is a song of ice and fire, the cut is clumsy and the blade cuts Bran's leg. But Bran doesn't feel anything given that he's paralyzed from the waist down. Kind of sad and also a little bit, I don't know, merciful there, if you want to call it that. And then Rob is there, mounted, sword in hand. Rob tells them to surrender and that if he, they do surrender, they'd have a quick and painless death. Bran desperately looks to Rob as his last hope, but the six people there don't put, much, don't put much stock in him. Just, you know, surrender your horse, boy, and the deer, and you'll be on your way. It's six against one, buddy. But then Rob Stark whistles, and the direwolves emerge from the brush, growling. Not six against one, six against three. Though Stiv is all about, it's only dogs, man. So there's like freaking blood dripping from Greywind's muzzle. So yeah, okay, only dogs, right. But the dude orders the people in this party to take the direwolves and rob prisoner, and then Rob charges. Winterfell, he shouts, charging into the mix of them. Rob's sword takes a dude with an axe. Another guy grabs the reins of Rob's horse, but Greywind jumps him and pulls him down into the stream, and the water goes red. Love George's imagery there. Rob and Osha fight, but then Rob turns her final spear thrust and he runs her down with his horse. Meanwhile, Summer takes Holly in the calf with, and then tears out her stomach. Meanwhile, Summer takes Holly, the blonde woman who I forgot to name earlier, in the calf and then tears out her stomach. The sixth guy tries to run away, but Greywin emerges from the stream, catches him, and takes out his throat. Yikes. And finally, it's only Bran and the big man Stiv. He holds a knife to Bran's throat, threatening to slice. And if Rob doesn't call his direwolf off, he will slice. Rob calls the direwolves to him as Osha rises. Stiv orders Osha to kill the direwolves, but Osha ain't about to do that. She tells him to kill the direwolves himself. Stiv is at a total loss. Finally, he asks for Rob's name and tells Rob that if he wants to see Bran alive, get off your fucking horse. Rob reluctantly complies, and then Stiv orders Rob to kill the wolves. Rob doesn't move. Stiv threatens. The wolves or the boy? No, Bran screams. Stiv yanks Bran's hair back, telling Bran to shut up when an arrow explodes out of his chest. The dagger falls away, and Stiv falls to the ground and into the stream, blood flowing from his body. Osha cries out for mercy, and then the Winterfell guard appear. Lewin asks if Bran is hurt. Bran tells Lewin that his leg is cut, and Lewin checks the wound. Bran turns his head and sees Theon smiling with a half dozen arrows on the ground. A dead enemy is a thing of beauty, Theon says, like the big fucking jerk that he is in this chapter. Rob tells Theon that he's an ass, that, and that he ought to chain Theon to the Winterfell yard and let Bran shoot arrows at him. When Theon arrogantly tells Rob that he should thank him, Rob says that Theon's an idiot. And that if he missed a shot, or it only wounded Stiv, or it hit Bran, or if the dude was wearing a breastplate, did you think of any of that, you big jerk? No, you didn't. Theon stops smiling, pulls his arrows up from the ground, while Rob glares at the Winterfell guard. And where were you? Um, they were following? And then they were waiting for Luan on his donkey, and then Theon pipes up. He spotted a turkey and figured Rob would like to... Rob would look after Bran. And figured Rob would look after Bran. Rob's... Pretty fucking pissed, but he looks back to Lewin asking, if Bran's asking after Bran's injury. Just a flesh wound. Rob looks over to the bodies, sees that two of them are Night's Watch deserters, probably desperate ones at that. Rob orders the heads of the two Night's Watchmen hacked off and sent over to the wall. When Quint, a new Winterfell guard, asks what to do about Osha, Rob walks over to her and she again asks for mercy and that she be Rob's man from this day forward. What would I do with an Oathbreaker? Osha broke no oaths. She's a woman, after all. The Night's Watch don't take woman on. 
Theon says they should give Osha to the wolves because did I mention that Theon is a big fucking jerk who is urging Rob to murder this woman? I think I might have mentioned that once or twice. When Rob protests that she's a woman again, Bran says that she's a wilding woman who wanted to give Bran to Mance Raider. Rob's really unsure what to do until Maester Lewin presents an option. We might do well to question her. This instantly relieves Rob's dilemma, and he orders her bound and brought back to Winterfell to be questioned, and live or die by the truths she gives us. And that is a Game of Thrones brand five. Gotta admit, it's not my favorite brand chapter. I'd probably rank it among my least favorite brand chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. But it's not, doesn't mean it's a bad chapter by any stretch. Just, just kind of, I don't know, man. You, you could put these things better than I can. What do you think, Evan? Yeah, agreed. We've uh, gushed at length over every brand chapter to date, along with our guests, LML for brand three and Men <laughs> for brand four. And for good reason, they're all masterpieces. So as such, I've been asking myself why it is that going into this reread, I ranked Bran towards the middle of the pack in terms of this book's POVs. Why not as high as Danny or Sansa or Catelyn, given all the iconic scenes we've seen through Bran's eyes so far? And I think it's because after being the defining location of A Game of Thrones' first act, Winterfell recedes into the background relative to King's Landing, the Vale, and eventually the Riverlands. All yeah. the buildup about the castle and the flying dream, and the others and their ice spiders will gradually pay off over the course of the series. But Bran's arc within this book specifically kind of peters out. Yeah. He's, he serves as our eyes on Rob's fitful evolution in this chapter and his next one. But then their mom, Catelyn, quickly takes over that role once she leaves the Vale. And Bran, I would say, gets the least satisfying closing chapter of any POV in this book. The one that feels the less like a final chapter, less less like an arc closer. It just, it just kind of ends... So for all the vivid imagery in his chapters, a lot of his arc is being kept on ice, so to speak, for now. <laughs> kept on ice? Wink, wink. It's got to wait till Jojen Reed shows up, and then all this is going to be relevant again. Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to believe we only have two brand chapters left in A Game of Thrones. And I know you're probably thinking, as you're listening, but you only have two Arya chapters left, too, which is absolutely true. But those two Arya, but Arya Stark is in Sansa and Ned's point of view chapters, so I don't. it doesn't feel like... She's as isolated as a point of view character, but for Bran, like he's the only eyes on Winterfell for until Theon, I think, in a Clash of Kings, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, yep. absolutely. But yeah, you know, this kind of this chapter is basically more of a oh, by the way, Winterfell is here too thing than as kind of masterful and suspenseful as some of the earlier chapters we were talking about from Ned, Catelyn, and Tyrion's perspective. That being said, I think this chapter does work to show us something interesting in the narrative, and that. Something in the narrative isn't King's Landing conspiring or foundational work for the War of the Five Kings and the Riverlands and the Vale. That great action set piece that kind of closes Brand Five out is George saying, hey, you, yes, you, in the corner, eating the goddamn Cheetos. Me? King's Landing is important. <laughs> yeah, yes, you. King's Landing is important. The Vale is important. But never forget that Mance Raider is on the move in the north. Oh, and remember the prologue and the White Walkers? I'm dropping a huge reference to them here. Monsters in the margins, yes, but they're coming. So... I agree with you in that this brand chapter is not necessarily as exciting, as, doesn't necessarily seem to have the same oomph that the first four brand chapters have, but it does serve a narrative purpose to help remind the reader of the overarching narrative function of the White Walkers, that there is threats beyond simply the Lannisters in the realm. And I think it does help set some good emotional beats for Bran and Rob's storyline as they progress towards the War of the Five Kings. Oh yeah, it absolutely has several important functions and achieves them. And while Brand 5 doesn't feature anything you might want to get tattooed on you, like his earlier <laughs> chapters do, it's still another beautifully written chapter for our tiny little hippie messiah. 
Uh, it tells a self-contained little story of Bran's hopeful day out, turning all sad before suddenly getting much, much worse. <laughs> and uh, while also updating us, as you say, on what Rob and Theon think of everything that's going on to the South. And we meet our first wildlings, although hardly sure. under the most auspicious of circumstances. No. But uh, so the arc of the chapter is, as we say, Bran's lovely day going all wrong. It starts out so well. You know, the, the crisp autumn air of his first chapter has turned into the snows that hinted winter, but they're still gentle. The chapter starts, a light snow was falling. Bran could feel the flakes on his face melting as they touched his skin like the gentlest of rains. So it's the, the snow feels very kind of homey and almost warm to Bran at this point. Uh, you know, not as not as melancholy a rain as the one that was falling on Ned in his most recent chapter. This this feels more like you know, restoration and hope at the, at the start of this one. And he's you know he's he's feeling a little afraid. He thinks to himself, he he sat straight atop his horse, watching as the iron portcullis was winched upward. Try as he might to keep calm, his heart was fluttering in his chest. But despite that, he quickly enjoys himself, as you said, with his legs unable to grip. The swaying motion of the horse made Bran feel unsteady at first, but the huge saddle with its thick horn and high back cradled him comfortingly, and the straps around his chest and thighs would not allow him to fall. After a time, the rhythm began to feel almost natural. His anxiety faded, and a tremulous smile crept across his face. There's that phrase again, tremulous smile, that also turned up in the most recent Ned chapter, <laughs> when he was describing Barra's mother. That's exactly, he described her smile as sweet and tremulous, just a very kind of fragile, youthful, innocent kind of smile that the brand is recapturing. He, some, you know, we talked in Brand 4 about how sad and broken he felt, and now he's getting a little bit of it back, and... He's doing it by making good on the lesson that his father taught him about fear and courage in his first POV chapter, about you can only be brave when you are afraid. Are you ready? Rob asked. Bran nodded, trying not to let his fear show. He had not been outside Winterfell since his fall, but he was determined to ride out as proud as any knight. That's just great. He's, yeah. he's, he's embracing that being a knight is about the pride and about you know, embracing your fears and, and working through them more than it is about being able to use your legs. And that's, that's a really important moment for Bran that he needs to find some peace within himself if he's going to be able to be happy going forward. Absolutely. And, you know, Bran's dream from an early, from his early youth was to become a knight and become a knight of the Kingsguard. And while he's never going to have that and he's slowly realizing that that dream is kind of dead and dying uh, or is dead, it sounds kind of harsh, but it's, it's not going to happen for him, unfortunately. Um, he's still willing to embrace the mentality of a knight. He's willing to ride out despite himself. And, you know, I, I have to give Brand kind of props here because uh, to me this feels very much like someone who has a paralyzing accident going out in public for the first time in a wheelchair or in some sort of you know with braces on on their legs or have to walk with this with the with the, with the what they call those things not not crutches with a uh, what a walker or yeah like a like a walker or something like that Brand's bravery here is very clear to me it's it's not something that you know it's not like the courage on the battlefield it's not even the kind of the courage that you know Brienne talks about in, in Clash of Kings a woman's courage it's Brienne's individual own courage to kind of show himself and show and be public and present despite his disability and you know it's it's a compassionate moment for uh, on George's part in writing this and that he gives Brienne a sense of exhilaration and a sense of accomplishment in, in writing out there and you know it's really you get some great touching moments with Rob and a little bit where Rob is telling Bran, oh, you could probably outrace me. You know, Rob is very much a compassionate, sympathetic guy towards towards Bran, which really makes him love us, makes us love Rob and love Bran too. And of course, makes Rob's downfall all the more sad when he finally falls in a, in a storm of swords. But yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, it's all due to someone who is now a prisoner of the Starks. Yeah, that's the great irony here is that 
As you say, this is about Bran going out and, and facing the whispers and stares that come with his disability, which he will do uh, throughout Clash of Kings as well when people come to Winterfell. And that's something, of course, that Tyrion deals with throughout, his, yeah. throughout the series and throughout his whole life. And yeah, Bran is only able to experience this moment of tremulous happiness thanks to Tyrion's generosity, which was itself forged because of the friendship between T- John and Tyrion. So this, this, this is the kind of hope for a rapport between Houses Stark and Lannister, but... By the time we get to this chapter, that possibility has already completely fallen apart, and Bran's mom has taken Tyrion captive, as uh, Rob, as Bran will remember hearing about a little later on in this chapter. So e- even as the fruit sprouts, the, the the foundation has rotted here. As the chapter continues, Bran starts to lose that kind of that hope and the the youthful innocence that he was recapturing, and that mirrors what's going on in the larger plot about how the, any hope for peace between Starks and Lannisters is really falling apart. But you still have this kind of gift remaining, this little memory of the friendship that could have been. It's it's a parallel and contrast, I guess, to the irony of Robert's assassination attempt on Danny only being carried out after he dies. Yeah. And in that case, it's a it's not a gift; it's the exact opposite of a gift. But in both cases, you have this irony of something bearing fruit only after the context has completely changed in a way that makes it almost irrelevant. Yeah, and it kind of for me it potentially sets a hopeful note for the future, as we talked about with Manu back in, in Brand 4, and that Tyrion's gift of a saddle to Bran, or not a gift, not the gift of the saddle itself, but the, the, the blueprints for the saddle, may bear fruit down the road when the conflict between Lannister and Stark doesn't matter. I mean, even by the end of A Dance of Dragons, it's really not about Lannister versus Stark. It's The Starks, by and large, are, are scattered and kind of uh, doing their own thing at the moment. Um, but for, <laughs> but in the story, you know, I, I do think that there's a strong possibility for Tyrion to return back to Winterfell. And I do think that the saddle gift that he gave to Bran is going to bear fruit in the long term. And I think that's, you, you talk about the, um, the roots rotting away with the War of the Five Kings just on the horizon now. I think that the fruit, though, is going to last longer than, than the roots that have rotted away in that it kind of serves as kind of a, a secondary set of roots for events that are going to transpire potentially in the winds of winter, most likely in the dream of spring. But it's, it's, it's cool though. But I think you make a great point that brands fading happiness here parallels events that are happening at the macro sense in the story. The war of the five Kings, like I said, is on the horizon. Stark and Lannister are about to go to war with each other. And Bran is no longer the guy who's like, yeah, I would love if they called the banners. We went off to war because he has a dread about that. Now it's his brother who's going out to fight his 14-year-old brother. It's the men of Winterfell that he surrounded himself with. It's his father down in King's Landing and his father's guard. And he's seen and he's heard about the consequences of the outbreak of war, which is by and large just about him. It's, it's happening right now with the death of George Cassell and the other two Winterfell guys, Will and... Uh, Heward. Will and Heward. Thank you. And um, But yeah, but at the moment, though, the boys are back in town, though, just before it gets all sad. Yes, as they ride away from Winterfell, they pass through the Winter Town, which, speaking of narrative parallels, coming right after Daenerys Four, it's an obvious parallel to Vaestothrak. Yep. Uh, as this kind of empty town that will be filled up later. Uh, as Old Nan says, when the snow fell and the ice winds howled down out of the north, farmers left their frozen fields and distant holdfasts, loaded up their wagons, and then the Winter Town came alive. Bran had never seen it happen, but Maester Lewin said the day was looming closer. The end of the long summer was near at hand. Winter is coming. <laughs> so clearly the Wintertown is the ice 
to Veus Dothrak's fire, so to speak. That these these are the two parallels, parallel settings that are being uh, given the groundwork for in these chapters. And uh, as you can see there at the end of that quote, it's tied into Bran's overall arc of, of maturity and losing his innocence because, you know, as an old name will call him, he is a sweet summer child. But as summer passes into winter, you get these new responsibilities and you get these social changes that he has to deal with. Yep. This is a reminder of the central role that Winterfell and the Starks play in both the social and magical structures of life in the North. And they really get intertwined once you start talking about winter and the long night. We've shifted from the apocalyptic climate threat that was established in Brand 3 and 4 to the response to that threat from <laughs> Brand's ancestors and the, the response that he may have to imitate as we get into the long night within the context of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think the politics you see embodied by the Wintertown go a long way to explaining why Ned's vassals fight so hard to restore his kids in A Dance with Dragons. Because the, the existence of the Wintertown and its uh, use during winter sets up the Starks as these kind of protecting and nourishing figures within the north against the hardships of winter and also the long night. That the, you know, the, the wolves will come again, as Jojen says in The Storm of Swords, is a promise of the restoration of that system because it is, of course, uh, the Boltons who break Winterfell and symbolically destroy that protecting, nourishing role and don't even really pretend to adequately replace it. So... Yeah. Uh, We'll get a little more into the Wintertown later on in the episode, but I think it's an important setting in terms of understanding how the Starks operate socially and politically within the North. Yeah, you know, contrasted to what Roose Bolton does when he comes into Winterfell in the Dance with Dragons, he finds squatters that are hanging out in the ruins, and he orders them to help rebuild some of the uh, some of the walls and some of the uh, defensive structures there. And after he's done, he hangs them all. Like, that is the Bolton rule of the North. Contrast yep. that here to the Starks, who are bringing the small folk in and allowing them to survive a long winter. And again, it should be emphasized that sometimes kind of gets, maybe not forgotten, but kind of gets de-emphasized is that winter can last more than just a few months. It can last for years at a time. So the role of the winter town is extraordinarily important as we're going to be talking about towards the end of this episode in setting these small folk and not just the small folk too, but a lot of these like mountain clansmen and some of the lesser houses around Winterfell up for success and success being defined as survival in the midst of the cold, in the midst of the snow, but also in the midst of the apocalypse too. Yes, indeed. And like I said, this all ties into Bran's overall arc. And there's the, the constant question about this chapter of how much is Bran allowed to know? How much can we really tell him? How much can he deal with as a child? And this is, of course, a recurring question throughout his story, from his very first chapter with Ned deciding he's old enough to see the execution and know what it means, all the way through his experiences with Blood Raven and the children in their cave to the north. And they're clearly picking and choosing very carefully what it is they're telling Bran and what it is they're not. And I'm sure we'll see much more of that in The Winds of Winter. Here, as it will a little later on, it's first specifically relates to sex. As you noted, Theon starts talking about Kyra, and Rob cuts him off. And of course, sex is a fertile topic for talking about this particular age gap, that between children fertile and... Topic. Fertile topic? Fertile topic? A-O. A-O. Uh, for talking about that gap between children and adolescents and young adults, between someone Bran's age and someone closer to Rob and Theon's age. It's... it's naturally comes up as Bran is entering puberty and starts feeling awkward about certain things later on in the story. And Rob, of course, explicitly invokes that age gap in this chapter. He says, I never know how much to tell you, Bran. I wish you were older. <laughs> and it's, it's, that's very kind of poignant because Rob is looking for a companion. He wants someone he can unburden himself to. It reminds me of when he told Catelyn in her third chapter that he just he can't run all this by himself and needs her help. Yeah. Uh, and his reveal regarding King's Landing, the Dark Wings' dark words that tell of Jory's death and Ned's fall, that really dries up the joy from Bran's day out. And 
you know, those themes of maturity and loss of innocence apply to both Bran and Rob. Bran gets his flash of childhood joy back in this chapter, but it doesn't last. Rob is on the precipice between childhood and adulthood and will really struggle with uh, crossing that bridge, as we'll see for the rest of the book. And the loss of Jory, as you noted, is really framed as emblematic of their loss of family and youth. That yeah. Bran remembers that time. Jory brought us here, and it was you and me and John. John was still here. We still had our whole family together, and we had this nice day together. And now all that's gone. And for Bran and Rob, I think that, and for Rickon probably too, I think that that sense of loss is inextricable from what it means to grow up. This is what growing up means to them now. It means losing people. And that's that's both true to life and incredibly sad. Yeah, the winter is death in the north, and yep, winter is often symbolized often symbolizes death itself, also in the north as well as in all of Westeros. And getting kind of Bran's kind of thoughts here and his memory of Jory bringing the kids here to fish is just kind of heartbreaking. It's not just kind of heartbreaking; it really is heartbreaking because Jory, as we talked about two weeks ago, is a good guy. He's set up as this kind of minor character, but he's kind of your plucky underhero at the can's tourney. He's the guy that's joking around with Ned and watching after the kids and being a good guy and a loyal retainer of House Stark. And now he's dead as a result of the people playing the Game of Thrones, very much bringing Bran into this kind of real world. So when he later talks about Rob potentially calling the banners as a result of this, it fills him with dread because he's realized he's getting beyond his childhood thoughts of wouldn't it be cool to write off to war to being war means death and death of people that I care and love and that I care about and love like Jory Cassell, like potentially his father too. Yeah. There's that implication for the fantasy genre in there and that both Sansa and Bran kind of have to get past the stories and the songs and recognize all the dread and fear and complexity that goes with those banners rippling in the wind that of course will become uh, only become a more important part of both the character arcs as we go. Yeah. But then, yes, just like Eddard Nye, this melancholy tone gets interrupted by an out-of-nowhere action scene. This chapter really takes an abrupt turn when Stiv's crew shows up because Martin avoids all foreshadowing for this. Unlike the attacks by the clansmen or by Jamie, which have some setup and uh, dialogue sure. beforehand, there's, you have no way of knowing that these people are going to emerge from the woods. It almost feels like the prologue in that way, even though, yeah. of course, Stiv and his crew are much less dangerous than the White Walkers, they're still just kind of emerging out of nowhere from the trees to threaten someone. And unlike those previous skirmishes, our POV is a defenseless child. So for me, coming back to this scene, it felt very Stranger Danger, like very <laughs> 80s, 90s PSAs, yes. telling kids not to talk to anybody they don't know or that they're offering them candy. Or, I mean, it's, it's a familiar kind of scene if you've ever been mugged. It's that escalation from unease and self-consciousness that Bran feels to his kind of blustery assertions of will, like he's kind of swearing his shoulders as much as he can do as a handicapped child. Yeah. And, and then, of course, it segues into outright threats and terror. Uh, you know, Rob is the classic big brother taking on the bully that you'll see in PSAs or in uh, family and kids shows from a certain oh, yeah. era. Uh, and it has, it has mixed results. You know, <laughs> Rob, Rob's intercession, I'll say that much. It doesn't, doesn't entirely go as planned. No, it doesn't do that. But no, you're right about those. It it does feel like an 80s or 90s PSA. I grew up watching some of those for sure when I was in elementary school and being told that by my, my mother as well. Don't talk to strangers. Don't reproach the van written with, with crayons saying free candy on the side of it. Don't do those types of things. But yeah, no, it's 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 not set up at all. I mean, there's reference made in John's earlier chapters of Lord Commander Mormont or Elsie Mormont, as he's commonly known, at, known around here, these parts. Talking about that there have been number, a number of desertions in the Night's Watch and people not returning from north of the Wall. 
Um, that's really the only foundation for Stiv and his people showing up in this chapter, but that doesn't really serve as foreshadowing whatsoever. It's not like a one for one. Ah, there's desertions of the Night's Watch. And of course, that means that that they're all going to that there's going to some of these folks are going to attack Bran outside of Winterfell. But no, it's it's very much I think it's you're, you're spot on in talking about it. Similarly to Jamie showing up and interrupting Ned's melancholy in that chapter. Bran's melancholy here is set by events that he's heard down in King's Landing. Ned's melancholy is similar about events in King's Landing, finding about Robert's bastards and finding out about Robert's plan to send a hired knives after Daenerys Targaryen. And here, that break in the chapter kind of serves that purpose of just thrusting us right in the action here. But I do think it does serve a larger purpose in showing us, like I said, uh, like I said before, showing us that there is danger beyond simply the Lannisters, that there are wildlings that want to come south of the wall. They have that reference drop to the White Walkers and they don't want to go back north of the wall because they would have to face the White Walkers and fuck that shit. We're not doing that. So yeah, it's, it's very much a, a, a interesting break in the chapter. It does kind of thrust us from melancholy into action, but I think it does it pretty well in the similar way that it does in Ned's chapter and that it's a kind of an exciting scene, but it also talks about some of the greater themes and some of the greater references in the series itself. Yeah, what does link this showdown to the previous combat scenes in the Game of Thrones is the undercurrent of class dynamics at work. Like, Bran is immediately aware that the danger is enhanced because of his signifiers of wealth and elite status. Quote is, One look, and Bran knew they were neither foresters nor farmers. He was suddenly conscious of how richly he was dressed. His surcoat was new, Dark gray wool with silver buttons, and a heavy silver pin fastened his fur-trimmed cloak at the shoulders. His boots and gloves were lined with fur as well. Hmm. So this is a direct contrast to how they were treated in the winter town. When they were riding through town, all their signifiers would make people bend the knee. You know, yeah. they were, these guys are in charge. That's what that meant. Uh, out here, when Bran is alone, suddenly his status makes him a target rather than lending him any authority. But of course, I mean, Bran can only rely on those class signifiers to defend him. First, he says so, does so literally, uh, where he says, uh, my, my brother rode off just a moment ago, and my guard will be here shortly, trying to intimidate them. But that immediately backfires because, your guard, is it? A second man said. And what would they be guarding, my little lord? Is that a silver pin I see there in your cloak? So immediately, the fact that you have a guard means you're valuable, means you're worth something. So that makes you a more enticing target, not the other way around. And then even as the situation keeps getting worse, Bran has to, can only keep falling back on this status. When they call him a cripple, he says, I'm Brandon Stark of Winterfell, and you better let go of my horse or I'll see you all dead. <laughs> and it is quite courageous, and you love him in that moment, but it's also, again, it doesn't de-escalate. It doesn't lead to him taking charge of the situation. It makes it worse because now, they're, now, they're, now they know he's valuable asset, and yeah. he's kind of angering them. So it, it doesn't help the situation at all. Bran's blood is what makes him a potentially useful hostage. And I think you can see that commentary with Rob as well, when he, he charges into the scene, put down your steel now, and I promise you shall have a quick and painless death. Again, very courageous, gotta, gotta love the kid for sticking up for his brother, but immediately Martin undercuts it with, uh, the strength of his words were undercut by the way his voice cracked with strain. Rob's still kind of a kid, and he, <laughs> he, shouts, he shouts Winterfell, just like Arya will in the Riverlands when fighting Amory Lorch's men, which also kind of backfires, like Gendry warns her later, that was kind of stupid, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Honestly, Rob, like, how do you, well, do you think this situation is going to end? Like, of course, at least Stiv holding a dagger to Bran's throat. You're outnumbered and Bran is already being threatened. Like, offer them the horses. See yeah. if you can find a peaceful resolution to this conflict. There's, there's a certain kind of arrogance with which Rob carries himself here that resonates with what uh, Stiv says, but only a Stark would be a fool enough to threaten when a wiser man should beg. 
As, hmm. as, as much as we can admire Robin Brand's courage there, there was also, to go back to the mugging parallel, I, I knew so many guys growing up who would say, if I ever got mugged, I would fight back. Yeah, I'd show them. I'd like knock them down. It's like, that's not the sensible reaction to do when you're being mugged by someone with a knife. You no. give up what they want and you hope it's over quickly. If you fight back, you're probably going to get hurt. Like, there's there's a childishness, I think, to how Robin Brand act here. Uh, Rob especially, because he's older and should know a little better. I mean, you know, he he castigates Theon for finding a violent end to the situation. But what was Rob's plan when Stib was threatening Bran's right. life at, at Dagger Point and about to make him kill the wolves? It seemed like Rob had completely screwed up the situation. So I, th- I think you can see, as you say, a connection to the larger themes there, where the understandable, sympathetic, even heroic response can sometimes be the dumbest thing to do, yep. uh, given the full context of the situation. Yeah, you know, it's it kind of reminds me of... Uh uh, of kind of Ned in from again from that last uh, Ned chapter where he he threatens Jamie Lannister with the death of Tyrion of his brother Tyrion and attempts to use his status as the hand of the king and Jamie's like he was hand of the king and here they're like yes this guy would as a Stark would say something boneheaded like that they right the funny thing about this chapter is that the wildlings and the the Night's Watchmen they never they aren't here to just straight up murder Bran and then just do their kind of sociopathic thing they want the horses and the meat and they want to get gone they're not interested in sticking around Winterfell. So there's not, there's only the threat to Bran's life is brought out when Bran Stark starts exactly. threatening these people. And then when Rob Stark says, I'll give you all quick and painless deaths if you surrender. Well, no, they're not going to fucking surrender then. Come on, say, I will, you know, just be on your way and we'll just forget about this. That's the way to maybe address that. Maybe use the wolves in order to kind of make that threat more 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 clear more plain but you know as as rob stark is rob stark is not going to leave a challenge and a threat to his brother and to his family unmet and i think that is i don't know if it's i would call it foreshadowing but it does set the foundation for rob stark marching south when ned stark is imprisoned and after the winterfell guard are all slaughtered by the lancers in the in, in the king's landing throne room now of course that action is absolutely justified and i support rob stark in every single way in doing that but i think this smaller scene here the smaller scene of violence is intended to set the foundation for us understanding Rob Stark's mentality when he calls the banners and marches south when the Starks, when his father in particular, are threatened. In the same way here that Rob Stark goes for his sword when Bran is threatened. And he's only threatened because Bran threatened him first and then Rob threatened him right afterwards. So, I, you know, it is courageous. You do like Rob for these things, but at the same time, you do kind of scratch your head a little bit and you're like, maybe that wasn't for the best, the way that you handled the situation. And you're really lucky that no one... And your immediate party was killed. Now, another thing, too, is, is uh, it should be pointed out that Rob Stark is castigating Theon. And Theon Theon is a big jerk. I might have said that once or twice before. But in this chapter... Maybe he's once a, or twice. Yeah, maybe once or twice. He's a big fucking jerk in this chapter. But you ask, what is Rob's plan? There, he doesn't have a plan here. And also, Rob is super projecting on Theon here because he accuses Theon of leaving Bran behind. But what did rob do rob decided to go right off to go find the wolves and he didn't want to bring bran along because bran wouldn't be quick enough that's not a good enough reason to leave your brother defenseless so yep. rob is projecting on theon who is a big jerk by the way and but at the same time you know theon doesn't you know really get we shouldn't give him too much credit here he's basically as bad as as rob in his conduct and not safeguarding bran but at the same time 
uh, he's a little bit worse and kind of the things that he says about killing people and how, oh, I love to see the, my dead, my enemies dead before me. That's just great. That's fantastic. Like that's psychopathic dude. That's, that's psycho. Yeah, he wasn't reading the room there. Like, everyone else is kind of horrified and puking at the what the direwolves have done. Bran is injured, and Theon's going like, ah, yes, corpses. I do love me some corpses. So yeah. I think there is there is a running theme throughout this scene of the, the nobles, even the ones we like, kind of being arrogant, entitled dicks. Yeah. And the small folk, even though the ones in question are being very, you know, legitimately murderous and threatening towards Bran, they, they are not entirely the instigators of what's going on here. The, no. the Starks definitely do escalate it unnecessarily. Yes, absolutely. And, um, I mean, it's interesting to consider who, when Stiv says that the Starks are this classic Stark, that Bran would be this defiant, he's presumably talking about Benjen. So yes. I'm curious, I'm curious to know how Benjen got that reputation. But it is, it is kind of a thing that cuts across the noble class, even the ones we like, as with the Starks. To be clear, uh, you know, I like Rob Stark a lot. He's a good guy. I think he wins us back in this chapter. With his his mercy for Osha, uh, clearly establishes he's still a good-hearted dude. So I don't mean to yeah. come down too hard on him, but I do think that's an interesting subtext here, just as it was with the Jamie Ned action scene, in which Jamie sacrifices Ned's men and his own. Actually, he yeah. gets five of his own men killed for no reason whatsoever. And I think there's there is a similar critique going on in the background here. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and I do think that Rob is is a good guy and I do root for him as a character and even in this interaction you do kind of root for him and and do kind of cheer for him when he charges you know he was I'm not sure if it's necessarily the same one for one but it almost is a uh, no chance no choice sort of situation for Rob at this point and similar to Brienne's story from the end of the crossroads in A Feast for Crows although again Brienne is much more justifiable because she is actually defending people from harm murder rape and all the other terrible things that that the Bloody Mummers are known for and have been known for in Westeros. Yeah, that's a good, there's an important distinction there with how one of the, one of Rorge's crew says the same thing Osha does. And went like, we're just looking for horses. We're just looking for supplies. Give those to us and we'll be out of our way. But then Rorge himself jumps in and says, fuck that. I'm raping and killing all these people. And yeah, I think that is what makes uh, Brienne stand a little more uh, purely heroic. But yes. Again, we still love the Starks, and that takes us into our likes and dislikes uh, for this Absolutely. chapter. So what do you like about Brand 5 in A Game of Thrones, sir? No, I, I really, really, really like how in this Brand chapter, it offers a new version of Brand's really sad, are they ever coming back line from Brand 4. In this form, though, he Bran is asking after John, and he says, "Will we ever see John again?" So in Bran Four, it was a question of whether Catelyn and John would return, with Rob hopeful and telling Rob that they'd ride out to meet Catelyn, and then they'd head up to, and then they'd head up to the Wall for an adventure. <sighs> Let's all be sad for a second. All right, yes, sir. We're beyond that. Here, Rob tries to reassure Bran that they saw Uncle Benjamin at the feast. And man, is that sad, especially on reread, right? I mean, it's sad because Benjen is still missing as of book five, and John has never returned back to Winterfell. But in John's final Dance with Dragons chapter, after declaring that he's going to march on Ramsay and save Arya, what does John think? He thought of Rob with snowflakes melting in his hair. Kill the boy and let the man be born. He thought of Bran clambering up a tower wall, agile as a monkey. Damn, that makes me sad just kind of thinking about it. So again, nicely done, George, and making us all feel sad again. And especially as rereaders making us feel especially sad, knowing that none of what Rob says is ever going to come to pass. John is not going to come back to Winterfell, at least by the end of A Dance of Dragons, although I do expect him in The Winds of Winter at some point to come back. And, you know, Benjen has also disappeared and we may never see him again, though I do think we probably will at some point. Yeah, it's the, the thread of... 
loss and grief and, you know, futures forsaken, the dream decay that really connects all the Starks across all the books. We see it as early as book one, even as we generally associate this kind of feeling with the Starklings once you get to books four and five and they're really starting to miss each other and be distant from each other. But it's here with Bran in, in the first one. And uh, like you say, there's the image of the snowflakes melting in his hair that happens in this chapter and comes back with John's thoughts upon receiving the pink letter at the end of A Dance with Dragons. So that's a clearly an image that has real resonance for Martin in contrast to the image of the snowflakes freezing on your face, which he repeatedly uses as a microcosm of winter and death and hopelessness. The snowflakes melting on your hair on your face seems to symbolize the good times and the hopeful times and youth and innocence. So yeah, I mean... You know, I've been talking about those themes throughout this entire episode, but what really gives them a punch, as you say, is the sense that these people really miss each other and that there's yeah. a sense of real mournfulness and something missing that they're all kind of reacting to in their own way. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So what'd you like about this chapter, man? Well, as per usual with Baran's chapters, we get some gorgeous nature imagery here when he's uh, riding through the forest right after learning about Jory. The quote is, he knew this would, but he had been so long confined to Winterfell that he felt as though he were seeing it for the first time. So again, that image of rebirth and restoration. The smells filled his nostrils, the sharp, fresh tang of pine needles, the earthy odor of wet, rotting leaves, the hints of animal musk and distant cooking fires. He caught a glimpse of a black squirrel moving through the snow-covered branches of an oak and paused to study the silvery web of an empress spider. (laughs) I can so easily imagine, like, the camera focus racking from Bran's smile to the spider web as he looks at it, like the spider web in the extreme foreground. You can only see it after the camera shifts focus. You know, the magic Bran will learn and the religious powers he will encounter are rooted in nature, so this kind of imagery does keep us grounded in his messianic arc, even though, as I said, a lot of the actual payoff there is pushed off to later books. And it's it's nice to have this little moment of solace because this is the part of the chapter where he's learning about Jory and feeling very sad about it. So you get the sense that nature is almost kind of comforting Bran, like it's enveloping him like a blanket. And even as it's bringing up these sad memories of times with Jory, it's also making him feel better about, you know, the circle of life, not to get too pretentious huh. about it. But I think getting out in nature can be very restorative when you're feeling grief and loss because it reminds you of just the cycles of everything and how everything that's born dies and goes back to the earth. So I think Bran's experiencing a little bit of that kind of feeling uh, in that passage there. Yeah, he really is. And it's kind of cool, cool too, when you think about what Blood Raven tells Bran in A Dance with Dragons, that the children of the forest, they went into the trees, they went into the birds, they went into the animals. And Bran has this line in this chapter about how he thinks it would be so cool to go up and climb up a tree like a squirrel. And you yeah. kind of like scratch your head. You're like, huh, yeah, that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? And that's going to be entirely possible as Bran becomes much more of a green seer and becomes much more attuned to the old gods and to the magic of the children of the forest and their ability to skin change different animals. And, you know, as we see in, you know, the Winds of Winter's Theon chapter, that Bran is seemingly skin changing into the ravens outside of Stannis's camp. And that's kind of cool that, you know, Bran is paralyzed as he is, has the ability to live beyond his his disability and kind of experience life with legs, even as in this chapter that he's, you know, not necessarily having the best time of it, even though he's, he's, he's it's cool, like getting out there in nature. He still is kind of strapped to his horse. He's not able to use his legs and he is kind of limited in his mobility, but it's good that he has the ability to get beyond that as he progresses in his green seer abilities and his ability to control and wield magic and skin changing. Yes, indeed. I'm looking forward to much more of that as we go. Uh, what about uh, your dislike for this chapter, sir? What didn't work for you? 
Okay, so dislike for this chapter. So if you guys kind of remember all the way back to episode two, so this is our brand's first chapter, I said that my dislike for that chapter was that the friendship between Rob and Theon was a tell-not-show sort of thing, and that I'd be kind of keeping an eye out for other examples of this. Well, here we are again, my friends, my plebs. Another iteration of Rob and Theon's tell-not-show friendship. There's not really much in the way of congeniality between the two, even the one moment where Theon is, you know, kind of broing up about banging Kyrie, Kyra, Rob's all rightful and Rob's all rightfully at my dad, like, dude, shut up. You're around a freaking eight year old. And then at the end of the chapter, Rob is threatening to chain Theon to the wall and have Bran shoot arrows at him for his stupidity. All of these reactions by Rob are you know, incredibly understandable and, and, and believable for that matter. But what becomes kind of less believable is that the story and George want us to believe that Rob and Theon are best friends. And that works really well in service of twisting the knife in the Stark's back when Theon betrays them to Clash of Kings, which, you know, is a really great twist. Uh, but unfortunately, I think what we see in a Game of Thrones and really into A Clash of Kings too is that there's not the necessary kind of Brutus Julius Caesar character work from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar play that shows Robin, Robin Theon's friendship in action. It's all kind of said that these guys are the best of friends, but when they're actually interacting with each other, they're not necessarily acting like the best of friends. Theon is acting imperious, arrogant, like the older guy. Rob is acting angry, like kind of kind of like the freshman to the senior sort of mentality from high school. And, you know, I, I think that is part of the limitation of the POV structure that George has here. And that brand's point of view is the only one that's in Winterfell at this point in the story. And we don't get the ability to see Robin Theon in a more teenage context. Everything always has to be filtered through an eight-year-old's perspective and through his older brother's perspective, which is to try and not, which is to be a little bit unsure of how much to tell Bran and to kind of keep some of the more mature elements that are going on in and around Rob and Theon's relationship outside of the public view from Bran. So that's, again, it's a great twist when Theon betrays the Starks, but that friendship that is supposed to be so foundational to making that betrayal so potent is not necessarily seen and in the interactions between Rob and Theon, especially in Bran's chapters. Yeah, I agree. It's the, a lot of kind of groundwork is left on the cutting room floor there. As as moving as Theon's thought about, I you know, Rob died at the Red Wedding and I should have been with him. As moving as that is, it kind of more represents, I think, Theon's overall loss of his, his arrogant glory days than it does any specific relationship to Rob. Yeah. could have been could have been done much better. Agreed. So uh, my dislike for this chapter is that Osha, who I generally really enjoy as a character, gets some inconsistent characterization. And that in this chapter, she urges Stiv to take Bran to Mance as a hostage. But in Bran's next chapter, she dismisses Mance as a, quote, brave, sweet, stubborn man who will never be, off to, never be able to fend off the White Walkers on his own. As we see, he's learned to his dismay in A Storm of Swords. After all, she says the latter is why she went on the run with an asshole like Stiv. So... <laughs> Was she just trying to save Bran's life, maybe? But then what if Stiv accepted her plan? I think I feel like this is Martin not entirely paying attention to Osha's motivations, given that she's such a background character at this point. So, uh, not a huge problem. Again, I like where Osha goes in the Winterfell story, but it definitely stood out to me on reread that her perspective on Mance seems to shift completely between these two Bran chapters. 
Yeah. Some of those minor characters, you do feel that George necessarily have put as much thought into, should they be acting one way in one chapter and then acting one way in the next chapter? You know, one of the things that George has talked about is that Brand's chapters are the hardest to write. So yeah, you could, you could imagine a scenario where George wrote this chapter and then wrote the next Brand chapter, maybe like six, seven, eight months after writing this chapter because he finds them so difficult to write. But, you know, as we talked about in our Wins of Winter episode from our, our Patreon, when the Wins of Winter is going to come out, that Osha is going to get a lot more characterization in the Wins of Winter. And the reason why is that George was so impressed by the performance of Natalia Tena, who plays Osha in the show, that he's decided to try and write her as a better character, to write more about her when we interact with her in Davos's chapters, I believe, and Davos's chapters certainly in, in The Winds of Winter. So, yeah, I, I agree that Osha is a bit inconsistent here. There's also some other minor characters that also kind of get some inconsistent, inconsistent characterization. But yeah, you're spot on on that. Yeah, and uh, I look forward definitely to seeing what he does with OSHA going forward. Uh, speaking of laying the groundwork for future developments, <laughs> that takes us into our foreshadowing and groundwork section, a lot of which is for how Theon will evolve as a character in the Winterfell area Yep. as the series goes on. I think it's interesting how a lot of the kind of innocent sweet moments in Winterfell get refracted and mirrored later in the series and much more darker yeah. and less less innocent ways. Like, you know, this is this is not the last hunt Theon will undertake in the Winterfell area, but next time he's hunting in these woods, he will not be hunting with Bran, he will be hunting Bran, <sighs> along with the rest of his companions. The most dangerous game. So that's, that's kind of like a dark twist Martin pulls. Who knows how much of Theon's story he has worked out in his head, given that there are still some hints that Tyrion is the one he intended to sack Winterfell. Yep. But I think, I think, I think there are some nascent ideas kind of swirling around his mind at this point. Uh, Theon's relationship with Kyra will also turn from their flirty exchange in this chapter something into something much, much darker as the series progresses. He'll, he'll summon her as a conquest to Ned Stark's bed after he takes Winterfell in the Clash of Kings before raping her in an attempt to work through his frustrated masculinity, and then things get even worse for her at the Dreadford. So, back again to those themes of lost youth and innocence, where, you know, Theon's definitely being a jerk in this chapter, but there's a kind of naivete to how he's behaving, and even that gets stripped away as the series goes on. Yeah, you know, Kyra's story is so freaking sad. I mean, it's, it's emblematic yeah, it of what is. happens when the Boltons are take control of the North, because Kyra, you're, you're absolutely right that, that Theon rapes Kyra in, in A Clash of Kings, but for whatever reason, Kyra attempts to to save Theon. She, you know, she escapes from the Dread Fort and attempts to get and gets Theon free. But their escape turns out to be a sport that Ramsay devises, and then he later Ramsay later murders Kyra by throwing a stone to her head, and then names one of his dogs after her. Who, um, yeah, it's it's so. F- it's it's gets really dark for for a lot of these minor characters in and around Winterfell, um, but there's the dog Kyra that's still alive in in the story, and um, yeah, I mean there's a, there's a great I'm looking at a little piece of artwork right now where where Reek from from the Turn Cloak is standing there and and Kyra is uh, licking his face. I'm not sure, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, that is, Theon has a sweet relationship with those dogs. It's one of the few bright spots in his otherwise extremely dark dance chapters. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to Stannis unleashing Ramsay's dogs on him and Kyra ripping out the bastard's throat. Absolutely. That's going to be great when we get the Winds of Winter next week. It's going to be so, so good. Yeah, next Tuesday, I think. 
Absolutely, it's always a Tuesday. <laughs> anyway, another a little bit of foreshadowing here comes with Rob when, as you say, he says, I listen to him, referring to Maester Lewin, I listen to everyone. Clearly, that's something that matters to Rob as a model of leadership because we'll see him build on this later in the book when he's marching south and he's listening to each lord in turn in his, among his bannermen. He'll take advice from one and kind of weigh it against what he's hearing from the other ones and try to suss out uh, who's giving him the best advice, who's holding things back. And as many people have said, that's one of the great qualifications in a leader in really any political system yeah. is cultivating multiple sources of information and weighing them against one another. So even at a youthful age, even in a chapter where he's behaving with somewhat inappropriate youthful bravado, there are signs that Rob has some really genuinely strong leadership instincts. Yeah. And these are things that he learned at the table of Ned Stark growing up, yep, where exactly. Ned brought all the folks to his table and, and listened to their concerns and their complaints and their triumphs and their sadnesses. And he incorporated their unique perspectives into developing different things about Winterfell. And I think that's definitely a Ned Stark Ned Stark living on in in Rob and having an influence on on Rob and and doing things for Rob that will sustain his campaign really longer than it really should have. I mean, Rob Stark should have been toast by the end of a Game of Thrones, but because he has the ability to listen to good counsel from folks like Catelyn, from Brendan Tully, from his other lords and from his northern lords and from his river lords, he's able to sustain his war against the Lancers long after it probably should have ended uh, ended for him as a 14 and 15 year old kid. Um, one other final piece of little bit of foreshadowing is that Stiv is describing his, uh, Bran is looking at the cloak that Stiv has. He describes it as fallen almost to pieces, patched here with brown and here with blue and there with dark green and faded everywhere to gray. But once that cloak might have been black. Now I was, this came, kind of came very, very late, like literally within minutes before this pod, we started recording this podcast, but this kind of reminded me of the story that Mance Raider tells John as to why he turned his cloak and became a wildling in that he talks about a, uh, when he was out on a ranging one day, they had brought out down a fine elk and they were skinning it, but then a, uh, a shadow cat jumped out and then attacked Mance Raider and shredded his arm and he was his brothers had left him behind north of the wall. So then he was carried to the wildlings actually cared for Mansfrayer. They kept him alive and they had sewn his cloak back together with different colors. Um, they talk about it being sewn with some scarlet silk that uh, one of the wildling women had her grandmother had, had shown her. But when he got back to the shadow tower, he was told to get back into his black cloak. And then he left the next morning uh, because you know he was going to wear any cloak he would want to he would want to choose. I do think it's really cool that Martin here is showing turn cloaking as a concept, as kind of very much literally, as the as Stiv yeah, exactly. here. Stiv here is his cloak is you know all different colors now as opposed to the black, and similar to Mance Raider, whose cloak is before he actually turns to the wildlings and becomes king in the north his cloak is black and then it's sewn with scarlet silk and he's told to throw that cloak cloak away when he gets back to east watch but he refuses to do that because he is uh he's mance raider man he's fucking mance raider and he's the one of the coolest characters in all of a song of ice and fire so just thought it was a kind of a cool connection here i'm not sure that martin necessarily intends it intended this to be a ah this is what mance this is showing us what mance raider is going to be but it might be something again where he was going back and rereading some of the characterization and contextualization of the wildlings that he had shown in earlier books and said oh that would be a cool concept to kind of revisit it from stiv and his cloak of many colors to mance raider having the kind of the same concept in mind so that's one little thing that i found kind of enjoyed that one a little bit but yeah 
Yeah, I think it's uh, emblematic of how Martin uses the cloaks of the Night's Watch in general to emphasize either an admirable kind of purity of soul and spirit and mission, or as Mance says, it's an unrealistic reflection of the complexity of human life, which is more reflected by the 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 patched model worked of characters and colors that you see in his cloak or in Stiv's cloak. That, you know, it's it's not necessarily reasonable to expect someone to live and die by their duty and everything else in the Night's Watch Oaths. That, that doesn't really reflect the reality of human experience, which is something we'll get into much more as we get uh, into Mance Raider as a character, because he's yes. a character who is, is built up quite a bit before we meet him, not just in this chapter. And that's something I really enjoy. Can't wait, man. Yes, indeed. So moving on to the theory section, uh, as I said earlier in the episode, the winter town, I think, is definitely conceived as a parallel to Veus Dothrak. And we speculated last week about what's going to go down at the sacred Dothraki city. So this week we're going to speculate about what's going on in the winter town, about will it play a role? Will civilians be gathered there? And of course, whether, will they eat each other alive? The answer <laughs> is yes. Yes, they will. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the winter town is a really cool setting in that it is a little bit explored here, but is not, you know, winter does fall or is falling about to fall on winter on on. Winter is about to fall on Winterfell in by the end of A Dance with Dragons, but the civilians and the small folk are not coming to Winterfell. And you, you know, like I said before, why is that? Because the freaking Boltons are hanging small folk left and right who are not necessarily. So they're so the the Boltons have essentially despoiled the sacred ground of the Starks and the sacred role of the Starks in protecting the small folk. But I think that we can be fairly confident that the Boltons will eventually fall and will be despoiled of Winterfell itself and that Winterfell will be returned to the Sarks at some point. But for the time being, I do think that Stannis will hold Winterfell at some point in the Winds of Winter. My question is, do you think that Stannis is going to invite the small folk to start staying at the Wintertown or is he going to be kind of the more, call it like the Brendan Tully at River Run sort of thing and like we need to get rid of all these excess mouths because we don't have enough food to feed all of these people. Will that be his mentality or will he be more of the Stark mentality of trying to bring all these people together to survive the winter as it's falling on Westeros? Well, I think the winter town offers the possibility for kind of splitting the middle there, where splitting the difference that is, where yeah. you don't invite the small folk inside the castle, inside the military fortification. You have them right outside. Yeah. And you have the ability to kind of look after them and, and nurture them there, but they're not interfering with the kind of military readiness and discipline that Stannis and the Blackfish value so highly. But yeah, I think our kind of return of the civilians to Winterfell will accompany Stark Restoration. Right now, as you see in A Dance with Dragons, they've turned to White Harbor as the relative era, era of area of refuge and safety. Yeah. I think Sansa is going to probably return to the north via White Harbor with her army of the Vale. So I think there's a possibility for a great gathering of civilians together there and then marching on Winterfell in the winter town. Sansa's army itself will presumably come with plenty of tagalongs, as all armies yeah. do. Plenty of civilians go go along with to support and cater to the needs of the knights and the soldiers. So I, all this feels to me like the payoff to Catelyn considering the people Edmure is shielding River Run to be useless mouths. The payoff to Danny closing her gates to her people in Slaver's Bay. This is an intense quagmire that our heroes have navigated throughout the series. And I think like a lot of the ethical quagmires in the series, we're going to see the ultimate example of that when we get to the Long Night and the others. And the Starks and Stannis, if they're all in the area, have to really decide, make these hard decisions about human life and who you're going to protect and how you're going to expend the resources to protect them up against the ultimate enemy. And I don't think it's going to end well. No. A Dance with Dragons is chock full of cannibalism, especially in the north. You got Frey Pies, you got Jojen Paste probably, Hard Home, people are eating each other alive, the Peasbury men in Stannis' camp who commit cannibalism, uh, the fate of the Night's Watch deserters that Cold Hands f feeds to Bran and company under the guise mm -hmm. of pork. 
the invocation of Skagos and Davos's arc. It's it's a motif. It's very yes. in the book. Yeah. And presumably that's only going to get worse as we get into winter and genuine starvation, which is something people have brought up several times in this series. That is, Obviously, people, especially peasants, go through hardships in Westeros in any season, but winter is when it really gets bad. Yeah. And I think that would dovetail spe- specifically with Stannis' story perfectly if he's still hanging around the area because they came very close to cannibalism at Storm's End during the siege. So that would link up nicely with his overall stories. All of which is to say that while the winter town is a symbol of political strength, as it's presented in this chapter, as, as I said earlier, a symbol of how the Starks have kind of fostered this loyalty. It might not end up in that way in the larger narrative of Song of Ice and Fire. I think we might, just as Danny kind of abandoned her people outside Meereen, I think we might see Stannis and or the Starks forced to abandon people in the Wintertown once the Army of the Dead shows up. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think what Martin's greater point is, is that... You know, it's, it's a point that's brought up in, and but Elsie Mormont brings up at the end of A Game of Thrones is when dead men come hunting in the night, doesn't matter who sits the Iron Throne. That's the same sort of thing that's going on here in that the winter town is intended to allow the people of the North to survive. But because the North and all of Westeros, for that matter, have been consumed by the war for the Iron Throne, who will sit the Iron Throne? Who will be the Lord Paramount of the North? What's been left behind is the care and the concern for the small folk. All of the resources are being consumed by the militaries, and all of the resources are being expended in exponential ways that is not going to be sustainable as winter is falling on Westeros. History Westeros did a fantastic podcast on House Manderley and about Wyman Manderley. You know, one of the things that Wyman Manderley talks about is that he has all the silver in, in the vaults at, at White Harbor, which is great. But he talks about the silver being used in the context of continuing to support Stannis's, you know, fight for the North, which, you know, also great. I think it's entirely justifiable from a political standpoint. From a survival standpoint, though, maybe not so justifiable. That silver could buy food for those in the north, could import food from Essos, could import food from the Vale, which has not been necessarily been touched by war. And things are about to get a whole lot worse for the north, too, when you have, like you talked about, the Vale army coming north, the potential of wildlings coming south as well. You have all these armies still in and around Winterfell fighting it out. And winter is falling at this point. And overarching all of that is the freaking White Walkers are in the area and they're finally on the march. I mean, you have to imagine the Winds of Winter is going to finally be their moment where they breach the wall and come south at a time where humanity is in its worst possible state. At the end of a long, brutal war, which has seen tens of thousands of people die food stores eaten up and precious resources dwindled down to a place where survivability becomes less and less certain. So I do think the winter town in the past had served as a great place to rally the North to the Starks cause, as well as to keep the people in the North alive in the winds of winter in a dream of spring. I don't think it's going to serve that purpose. I think you're spot on in thinking that that place is going to be a place of horror, a place where people eat each other because there's no other way to survive. There's no other food in and around Winterfell. You know, a point is made in both Ashes and Theon's chapters in A Dance with Dragons that food is so scarce. Stannis's camp is eating horses to survive and people for the, in terms of the Peasbury men. But Theon in Winterfell, their, their fate is not much better. Their food stores are dwindling. They're losing men to hunger. 
they have this huge army there. They don't have the ability to supply. They don't have the they don't have the logistics to sustain for the long term. Again, all when winter is falling, and at a time when food and the preservation of food and the ability to eat and sustain is at its greatest need. And because this is a song of ice and fire, it all ends in tragedy. Well, it doesn't all end in tragedy, but it ends in tragedy for a whole lot of people here. I think we're going to see the starvation of a lot of the population and cannibalism of the rest. And on that hopeful, (laughs) cheerful note, we bring the episode to a close. Thank you all for listening to our episode on A Game of Thrones Brand 5. Uh, As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, Check out our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. On social media, you can check us out at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or send us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan P. Fish on Twitter, Brendan P. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next time as we have another cheery chapter as we stare out into the blue from a sky cell in a Game of Thrones Tyrion 5. Definitely my favorite Tyrion chapter so far, so I look forward to discussing that with you, sir. It's going to be a lot of fun. We get Tyrion, we get Tyrion as most tyranny. Tyranny? Yeah. I don't know if that's a real word here, but we start seeing it is the- now. We start seeing Tyrion as he's going to be for the rest of the series, or at least until the end of Storm of Swords. But yeah, I I completely agree. So thanks for listening. We will see you guys next time. And take care, everybody.